recording is on and we are into our text. Romans chapter 10, uh, of course your text starts in chapter 9 because last week we ended at verse 29. Um, the main reason for that is that, I guess you could say it's thematically, Chapters 9 and 10 of Romans, in one sense, deal with divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, when we studied chapter 9 last week, I was reflecting on it and thinking, yeah, we touched on the idea of election or God's selection uh, of, the, of whether or not he's sort of selecting the Jews racially or individually. But I realize we spend more time talking about the culture and the Jewish understanding of scripture and of the law than I did focusing on the, the doctrines of election versus uh, human responsibility, which I think is a better way of approaching the text anyway. Because we tend, when we start talking about the, the the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility and salvation, we end up getting into deep weeds and we end up getting into um, fine-tuned language that if it's not precise creates misunderstanding. And Jeff and I were talking about this before the class because uh, like even in philosophy, you use the wrong syllable or the wrong word, it changes the entire meaning of the conversation. And so we have to be very careful when we're talking about this. However, I also don't want to avoid it because the text is here. We're staring at it in, our, uh, staring at it in the face. So chapter nine, verses one to 29, could be identified as a exploration of divine sovereignty, especially when you have um, verse 20 saying, well, who are you to answer back to God? You know, if you're going to be questioning this, what right do you have to even ask this question? Starting in verse 30 of chapter 9 begins the questions and answers related to the responsibility of the individual in regard to the calling of God or to salvation. Now, uh, I think because we have Stevie here new, uh, you'll notice the handout is formatted a little differently and we, I don't think you've seen this handout format. I've rearranged the text. So in your Bible, it's just a paragraph. But the text itself in the handout is done in more thematic manner, so it helps you to see the logic of Paul's writing. As I said last week, the word question that starts your handout is not in the Bible, and neither is the word answer. It's not divinely inspired, it's Steve-inspired. So you can take that out with full you know, permission, but it does tell you kind of what Paul's doing here. Uh, I think Carl and I were talking about this last week, is that Paul has had this conversation so many times 
for so many years, whenever he would go into a synagogue and he's preaching and he's teaching, he knows what the, the questions are before they're even asked. So remember, the book of Romans is written to a people he has never met. He's not had a chance to lecture to them. He couldn't send them a podcast. He could not write a blog. He'd had no way of communicating to them except here. So imagine him thinking, all right, this letter is going to be read out loud in the synagogues. Because I think there were nine synagogues in Rome around this time. It's going to be read out loud, and you can imagine the stirring as he's saying things like, you know, you, you people think that you're chosen by God, and the people of God are, but God didn't choose the firstborn of Abraham. He didn't choose Ishmael. He chose the secondborn, Isaac. He didn't choose Esau. He chose Jacob. There's selection happening in God's plan. And you can imagine the people in the room going, wait, they're all getting grumbly. And and then he says, so what do we say then? Right there in verse 30 of chapter 9. And then his answer, it's an answer talking about Gentiles. Now before I get into this, the text itself, this tension between divine sovereignty, human responsibility, uh, for lack of a better label, you have Calvinism versus Arminianism. If you don't know what that means, ask me later. Uh, But it's the idea that God chooses and selects irresistibly. And the Arminian says, well, no, we, we choose. And if you take that logic of the pure Arminian, you can also lose your salvation because it's up to you. So when you, it's how good you are at that moment in your relationship with God at the moment that you die of whether or not you get into heaven. So that's the extremes. They seem to be uh, very difficult to put together. So here's, this is from Chuck Swindoll's uh, commentary in Romans. He has this story that he tells, which I just want to read to you because I think it just sets the, the, the stage for us. For centuries, philosophers and scientists argued over the nature of light. Some claim that light behaves like a wave traveling through space, much like sound. So think of it, when you flick that switch, the light from there is like a wave, and we're seeing waves of light. Others disagree, stating that light is a stream of tiny particles emanating from its source. That's two completely different ideas. One is a wave, one is particles. Unfortunately, experimentation didn't help. When tested as a wave, light proved to be a wave. When tested as a particle, light proved to be a particle. And as people who understand such things explained it to me, one experiment should disprove the other. But that didn't happen. 
The debate divided the world's most brilliant minds into opposite camps, each experimenting, calculating, theorizing, and writing to prove the other side wrong. And then in 1905, a scholastic undesirable, a relative unknown who worked as a patent examiner during the day and spent his nights unraveling great mysteries, published an article in Germany's leading physics journal that would change everything. Albert Einstein put forward the idea that light is both a wave and a particle. His theory made no sense at all. Yet his calculations satisfactorily answered every objection. As scientific lay laymen, we can barely appreciate the effect that his idea had on the world. His theory, which eventually won him a Nobel Prize, defies the laws of physics as we understand them. This dual nature of light should not be possible, yet somehow, in a dimension beyond our intellectual capacity, the mystery of life is, simple, is as simple as two plus two. The world of theology has unsolvable puzzles as well. And he goes and lists a few of them. And he says, and one of them is, the sovereignty of God versus the free will of humanity. Theologians past and present have been guilty of bending one to serve the other, which inevitably leads to non-biblical belief and practice. For example, there were some Calvinist Baptists in 18th century England believed that evangelism interfered with God's sovereign predestination. So when young William Carey suggested that missionaries should be sent to foreign lands in obedience to the command of the Great Commission, an older minister told him, sit down, young man, you are simply an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you. I was actually at a conference once where the speaker from that perspective said, you cannot tell someone that Christ died for them because you don't know that. What? So you can see the extremes that create this tension and to think of light being both and, think of divine sovereignty and human responsibility as both and. If I may, that's a rather broad statement to, to and, and don't expect us to solve this grand mystery this morning. Um, I'm not that smart and it's, uh, it, it is a, I've used this illustration before, when you first get glasses, especially bifocals, you walk around stumbling into walls or downstairs because you're trying to focus all the time and your head's bouncing up and down trying to find the focus. You have to learn to let the eyes relax and let the blur be okay until it gets into focus. So we look at something like this and we go, I need to have it exact. Well, be careful with that request. It may not be possible to have it absolutely perfect in your mind. We can hold them. I, I wrote here, I said, God's demand for faith on the part of man is in no way inconsistent with God's sovereignty. They seem, quote-unquote, mutually exclusive. 
an either-or. But both divine sovereignty and human responsibility are taught in Scripture. Both. You can pull the verses out on either side easily. But when one is emphasized in exclusion of the other, the gospel itself is twisted. By God's own determination, He will not save someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. And a person cannot save themselves by an act of their own will. It's not mutually exclusive. And I made the comment last week, and you all seem to resonate with it fairly well, is that I can't think of a situation where God has refused to save save someone who wants to be saved. If someone says, Lord, help me, a sinner, God doesn't go, oh, you know, go away. Uh, I didn't pick you. No, the Holy Spirit has come into that individual's life, has changed, and the Spirit is convicting everyone. Because a lot of people aren't listening, or they're pushing it aside. Guess what? We haven't even got past the first uh, words of verse 30, and uh, here we are. Anyway, that's kind of a preamble to what we're going to be wrestling with the rest of this time here, about what is Paul trying to say when he's talking about the Gentiles versus the Jews in a congregation or a church that has both. Anyway, I'm not going to wax eloquent let me stick to my notes all right so verse 30 what shall we say then the answer that gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it that is a righteousness righteousness that is by faith but that israel meaning the jews who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. For the Jews, their birthright wasn't enough. They thought it was. They thought it would be good enough. And you have to also be careful when you read these verses and you pull them out and look at them. It says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. It doesn't mean they didn't do anything. You know, let's not say that they just, you know, hung around and were good people and then God just stamped them approved. But they approved, they pursued a righteousness that is by faith. This was a concept that he's talking about, the law. So just make sure you don't misunderstand that verse uh, because it didn't, the, the verse 30 doesn't have the word law in it. That's what he's talking about. Now, before we get too far in our understanding of Paul's writings, we always must remember that Paul still loved the law of God. Absolutely. It's three chapters earlier in this book. Romans 7.22, it reads, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I Find joy in it. So don't think he's you know, an anti-law guy, because he's not. 
he's trying to show the weaknesses of the law and what salvation truly is and where it comes from. Verse 32. Question is why? Answer, because they did not pursue it by faith, as, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah 28.16, along with 8.14. And I added those verses into your paragraph so you can find them later. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, this is a fascinating thing, because if you actually go to Isaiah 28.16, there's more to that verse. He's pulling out pieces, and then he pulls the piece over from verse from 8. Uh, 14 and puts it together to make his point that Jesus the son of God dying and resurrecting is a stumbling point it's a rock of offense Greek word for offense scandalon it's a scandal Michael Card wrote a song called Scandal On, based on this verse. Here's part of the lyrics. It says, He will be the truth that will offend them one and all. A stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Many will be broken so that he can make them whole. And many will be crushed and lose their own soul. Along the path of life there lies a stubborn scandal on, and all who come this way must be offended. To some he's a barrier, to other he's the way, for all should know the scandal of believing. It seems today the scandal on offends no one. The image we present can be stepped over. Could it be that we are like the others long ago? Will we ever learn that all who come must stumble? Jesus is a stumbling stone. I was talking with an author the other day, and they were working on a project years ago in the general market. Um, It's very, very popular children's material. And they were told they could use the word God, but not the word Jesus. If it was going to be on broadcast television. Because Jesus is offensive. And I'm thinking, I'm studying this, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you're going to be an illustration in my uh, (laughs) class. Because that's the rock of offense. You can talk about how God is love and... You know, God is this and God is that. But if you say Jesus is love, they're going to look at you. Like, oh, you're one of those? Yeah, I actually am. So deal with it. Um, but that was prophesied in Isaiah. Now, it's interesting. 
In Mark 21:42, Jesus uses another stone verse, and he quotes Psalm 118:22, talking about the stone and the foundation. Just for your tickles and grins, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, 1 Peter combines Isaiah 26:16, 28:16 which we have here. Isaiah 8.14, which we have here. And Jesus' use of Psalm 118.22. And it reads, it stands in Scripture, Isaiah 28.16, For I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. You see which part was used? Over in Romans. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, Psalm 118.22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, Isaiah 8.14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus uses Psalm 118, Romans, Paul uses... um, Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 8, and then later Peter uses all three, and all are saying the same thing. I find that beautiful, and the connections of Scripture, going all the way back to Isaiah, which you're teaching on Wednesday nights now, commercial, (laughs) someplace to go, um, comes through to Jesus, who's trying to indicate which later comes out in Ephesians where Jesus is called the cornerstone. Every building has the first block is put down as the cornerstone. Some of them get etched with some sort of, you know, designation or, you know, demarcation of when it was placed. If that's not placed correctly, the whole building will be crooked. I won't go into my story about dealing with that at a construction site once, but anyway, we had a building that was built like this. And I had to get a a forklift with the prongs on the top of the second story and push. And then they tacked it all together so it would stand. I will never live in that building. I know where it is in this city. It's down in Tempe. Don't don't live there. I was helping push the whole thing. Forklift. Anyway, it passed the inspector, so it must be okay. Anyway, all right. Romans chapter ten. My heart's desire, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul is not attacking because he hates the the Jews or the Jewish people. Remember over in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, he said, let me be cursed as they be saved. He is so, he so much wants them to believe. And he does it again. He says, my heart's desire. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I'm going to pause a little bit on that word zeal. 
the word zealous, Z-E-L-O-S, Greek word. We spell it with a U uh, for when something is, someone has, is zealous. Zealous means to boil, means it has reached that point of intensity. Now, I wrote this in my notes here. Paul knows zeal when he sees it because he embodied it. He knows exactly what it means to have zeal for God. And he's not saying it's a bad thing to have zeal. He's saying their zeal was just simply directed not quite correctly. So he's talking about good people. He's not talking about those that were, you know, murderers and thieves that were in jail that had made, you know, were be, had been condemned by the law of the land. He was talking about the Jews who were attempting as best they could to live a holy life. Now, I've done this before and talked about it before, so I went in some of my old notes and pulled this out. Um, but, you know, they had their Ten Commandments, and those Ten Commandments in the Jewish land became the 613 laws. Now, I have a book that has a chart in the back of all 613. I thought of printing that out and bringing it to you, but I need another ream of paper. It's extraordinary that this, these are the laws that were established a long time ago, and they're still being followed. Some of the Sabbath laws, you may have heard these before, but I'm just going to illustrate this. They wanted to make sure that their actions on the Sabbath were so holy that God could not say to them, you are not being holy on my day. So, they have parameters on how far they can walk on the Sabbath. That's why in, even in our city, you'll see on Saturday, you'll see a lot of Jewish families walking to their synagogue. Well, they have to live within a certain um, distance. Otherwise, they're breaking the law. You're not allowed to lift anything heavier than two figs. So make sure it's not a double cheeseburger. No, I'm kidding. Um, but there's no lifting because that's work. You can't have a cheeseburger. You can't have a cheeseburger. Can't have a cheeseburger. Yeah, that's, that's number 614. <laughs> um, there's no food cooked because that's working. So they would have to prepare the food ahead of time. Also, you couldn't poke or mend a fire. Now, that's fine later when you don't have a fireplace, but you cannot flick the switch to turn on the lights. That's work. So everything is on automatic timers. It's things like that, and you kind of go, oh, that's just silliness. Okay, yes. But why? And I dare say that they treat the Sabbath a whale of a lot more sacredly than we do. So let's, before, remember the old thing where we say, you point a finger, you got three of them coming back? Um, 
and one of them up. So, you know, we got to think about that for a second. I ain't turning out the lights tonight. You know, you, that's your job. Yeah, well, anyway. Um, I was making a joke. You guys know. That did not work. Okay. Um, so, when you talk about zeal, let's think of other places where Paul writes about it. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he writes, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of the fathers. And then over in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Uh, I have I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. And then in, in Acts, he's um, in front of a very angry crowd in Jerusalem in Acts 22. Get to that here. 22 verse 3 I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia and brought up in this city educated at the feet of Gamaliel, Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers being zealous for God as all of you are this day he sees and knows zeal but in verse 2 of chapter 10 of Romans, but not according to knowledge. <coughs> the only way that word is going to make sense to you in English is if we look at the Greek behind the word knowledge. Now, we might see typically the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. Think of the word Gnostic, other words that come out of that word, it means knowledge. That's not the word that's here. The word that is here is epinosis. This is head knowledge. Gnosis is head knowledge. I know something. Epinosis is spiritual knowledge. He's making a distinction here that while they may have had had knowledge, they don't know spiritual knowledge. The word epigenosis is used again in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, where it reads, The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge, the epinosis of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul's making a point. And because it's in Greek, and it's being read in Greek, the recipients go, oh, we get that. 
In our English, we don't get it because we just have one word for both meanings. For being ignorant, verse 3 of chapter 10 again, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, I looked at that and I went, well, how could they have been so ignorant? You know, uh, we use ignorant as a, um, as a pejorative. <coughs> we will use it in anger. You're an ignorant cuss. You're just an idiot. And it, ignorance just simply means you don't know. But sometimes you don't know on purpose. You, have in, you know what you know, but you don't want to know what you know. You are pushing back on the knowledge. And I wrote here in my notes, I said, how could they be ignorant? I mean, they're ignoring the scriptures. Duh. Let's look at the history of Israel. Hmm. They kind of did that a lot. If you're wondering, is righteousness taught in the Old Testament? I would say, yeah, a lot. Psalm 71 verses 15 through 19 and I'm going to read three of those five verses my mouth will tell of your righteous acts of your deeds of salvation all the day for their number is past my knowledge with the mighty deeds of the Lord God I will come I will remind them of your righteousness yours alone your righteousness O God reaches the high heavens you who have done great things, O oh God, who is like you? If those words have been in your hearing, and now you're ignoring the righteousness of God, that is a choice. And if you want to go into the divine sovereignty human responsibility argument, here we have it. They had it in front of them, and they ignored it. They refused it. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4 is described by many scholars as the hinge verse in this whole passage. So everything we have before, from chapter 9, verse 1, all the way to chapter 10, verse 3, and then from chapter 10, verse 5, all the way beyond, hinges on this verse. So I guess we could say it's kind of important. The verse reads, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, on the surface, we go, oh yeah, of course, we know that. Of course we know that. We have chosen to believe. We are, we understand this, but as Bible students in this setting, we have to think of who's receiving this message. He's trying to convince them and show them the error of their understanding of Scripture that Christ is the end of the law and the word end there is the Greek word telos, which literally means end, or can mean fulfillment, or perfection, or achievement. 
So it's a root of teleos, am I correct? So teleos means to be complete, to be completed, which is why we call our adult studies teleos. It's that idea of working to be complete. This word here, Christ is the end of the law. I had one writer say something kind of brilliant in, a, in its simplicity. If you're running a race and there's a finish line, let's just say, let me point this direction, it's the end of that wall, and I'm running toward it, that's the end of the race. It's also the goal. It's two things in one. It's the end, but it's also what I'm trying to achieve. Christ is both the end and the goal. Christ is the achievement. Christ is the perfection. Christ is the fulfillment of righteousness to everyone who believes. There is no need to add to it. When you finish that sprint and you cross that line, the race is over and you're not running anymore. You're done. Unless your coach goes, let's do it again. <laughs> Uh, that's an anecdote from my high school. I thought I would go out, you know, track, run the 400. I could do that. That's pretty easy. You know, just one time around the track, what's the big deal? And there was a all-state sprinter, 400 sprinter on our team, and, you know, we get, we line up, and boom, we take off, and we run the track, and I'm ahead of this guy. I mean, he's all-state, and I'm just... I beat him by 10 yards. We finish, I'm like, whoo, man, I should make the team. I'm going to be an all-star. And then the coach said, let's do it again. Oh, that was warm-up. <laughs> I passed out on the second <laughs> turn. <laughs> I was so out of shape on my, my knees, heaving. It's like, oh, my gosh. I, I can't do this. And my, my friend, he says, man, didn't you know that was just warm-up? I had no idea. I thought I was racing you. He goes, I, I didn't even put it in the first gear. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> sorry. That was not in my notes. <clears throat> but the idea of when you're finished, Christ is that finish. He is the end of it all. He is the one and with the caveat for everyone who believes. You see, he's bringing in that idea. God is sovereign, but Christ is the end of the law for those who believe. If you want to notice something, in your, if you want to circle a word, look at verse 3 twice, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. has the word righteousness. Four times in three verses. You think Paul's trying to make a point? You're ignorant of the righteousness of God. Didn't submit to the God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for the righteousness for everyone who believes. And then he talks about with Moses. And again in verse 6, the righteousness based on faith. Then he goes to the law, meaning the Moses' writings. Moses writes about righteousness. The person who does the commandments will live by them in Leviticus 18.5. If you want to put it in your side notes, Paul quotes Leviticus 18.5 again in Galatians 3.12. 
It's a favorite verse of his to use in his argumentation or his presentation of this. Now notice it says the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And I wrote in my notes, but they didn't. They couldn't. It's not possible to achieve law's perfection. Which is that, as Paul teaches in Romans, is that is the point of the law. The point of the law is to show you you can't achieve it. It seems like a counterintuitive thing, but that's the point. The point is to show you what is perfect. Can you achieve it? I'm going to try. But no one actually can. Only one did, and that was Jesus, because he was sinless. Ezekiel 20, verse 13 reads, The house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he will live. Oh, interesting. Right there he's saying, if you follow those laws, you'll be accepted. But they didn't. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. And then I said, I would pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to make an end of them. Verse 6 of chapter 10. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, he's now quoting Deuteronomy, who will ascend into heaven? He against quotes Deuteronomy. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? Again, Deuteronomy. That is to bring Christ from the dead. In other words, he's saying it's not us, not up to us to say who's in and who's out. But what does it say? Verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Then comes verses 9 and 10. Very famous two verses. Often used in evangelism. And I will say, it was one of the first Bible memory verses of my life as a child. I, re- I have a, this odd memory of knowing that we had been assigned this to memorize for Sunday. And it was Wednesday night, my, my dad was the choir director, mom's the pianist, I'm the youngest child, I don't know where my brothers are, they're somewhere. But I'm there at the choir rehearsal, but I can't be in the choir, so I'm by myself in this big, huge church. I explored every nook and cranny of that thing. I actually learned how to turn out the lights in the basement and walk (laughs) the halls so I wouldn't ever bump into them. I mean, obviously a bored kid. Um, But I have this picture of those halls and my repeating these verses over and over and over again verses 9 and 10, until I had them down. And I still think of those words today. They're embedded in me. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. When you think about those verses, we casually you know, cast them off. Well, what are the actions and activities that are happening in this verse? If you say it, you are confessing it, you are proclaiming it. 
I mean, let's just think about how society operates sometimes. Um, you go into a, uh, you know, a courtroom and they ask you to verbally swear that you will tell the truth. You might have to swear in the Bible or whatever, but it's a verbal assent. You can't just go, you going to tell the truth? <laughs> Maybe? I don't know. You'll find out. You don't have that. It's a, You have to verbally state it. You are expressing your, um, uh, I don't know, your integrity. So you confess with your mouth. Okay, that's one thing. But what are you confessing? That Jesus is Lord. That phrase is not common in this world. The word kyrios, or for Lord, in the Old Testament was used to translate the word Yahweh. So if you're in your Old Testament and you see capital L, O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the unspoken name of God. They would use the word Kyrios in its place. So here you have a declaration that Jesus is God. Not just Lord, or would mean you know, like a king or a ruler, that's the head that's implied. But this is a, this is a confession of who Jesus is and believe. So there's a confession and a belief in your heart <laughs> that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. Fascinating. So J. Vernon McGee was talking about this in his sermon many years ago and his very unique way. It says, when you say that you believe in God and deny the deity of Christ, you don't believe in God. Certainly not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the one who sent His Son into the world to die for our sins. And since the Son is God, He alone is the one who can make a sac satisfactory sacrifice to God for our sins. Had He been anyone else other than God, He Himself would have been a sinner. So there's a church in New York City, Dr. Harry Emerson Fosdick as the pastor. Now you may not know that name, some of you might, I think we've talked about him before, but he was one of the early liberal pastors of New York City. They had a flyer which McGee quotes from. This is what the flyer reads. Whoever you are that worship here, and in whatever household of faith you were born, whatever creed you profess, if you come to this sanctuary to seek the God in whom you believe, or to rededicate yourself to the God in whom you do believe, you are welcome. And McGee says, it goes on a lot to talk about peace and the fatherhood of God, but I'm nauseated reading, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> It sounds sweet and flowery and appeals to the natural man, but the point we need to be aware of here is he is speaking of the Antichrist. That is not Christ crucified. That is, whatever you believe, you're welcome here. And I would say, we would say the same thing at Camelback Bible Church. 
whatever you believe, you're welcome here, but you're going to be confronted with the truth. And you will need to make a decision. It's not going to be comfortable. You're not, guess what? You will be the rock of offense. It's not going to feel good. We're not going to say we don't welcome you. Well, we will say we welcome you and then listen to what the Bible has to say. Because there's those who will say, if you don't um, accept me for who I am, you're not loving. I'll say, I will accept you for who you are if you're willing to listen to the truth of God, and hopefully the Spirit will work within you to see the error of your ways. We have to make sure we're balancing that. Right? Okay. So you say it, you believe it, and it's yours. Too many people just say it. They say, I confess it with my mouth, but they don't confess that Jesus is Lord, and they don't necessarily believe that he was raised from the dead. They just say it. They're good, good people. And what Paul is trying to say, they're good people that need to understand and say the rest of it. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And the scripture says in Isaiah 28:16, same verse he was quoting from before, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. I love the fact that he brings that into this. Right in the middle of it. He's been talking, you think he's talking to the Jews, but no, no, he's talking about the Gentiles. No, I'm talking about both of you guys. You both need it. Y'all need it. All y'all. He was Southern. Um, the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's pulling that from Joel chapter 2. That's not a normal verse to be whipping out. I mean, people don't necessarily use the book of Joel in their devotional con- you know, conversation, but he knows the scripture so well, my guess is he didn't even look it up. It was already in his head. He didn't have to pull out his phone going, there's a really good verse. Ah, let's do a search for the word saved. Oh my goodness, look at all these verses. Now I have to read them all to figure out which one it is. No, he just... And then he doesn't cite it. We have to cite it. That Joel 2.32 isn't in your Bible. Here in Romans, I'm sorry. It's in your Bible. (laughs) I realized what I said. Wait. (laughs) Yeah, anyway. So how then will we call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in, in him of whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Then the verse 15, And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written in Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, just a little quick aside. In the King James Version it reads, it reads, How beautiful are the feet that publish peace and publish salvation. So Christian publishers have used this verse as their key verse for years. It's great. And I'm thinking... You know, in the NIV, it doesn't read the word publish, or the ESV doesn't use the word publish. <clears throat> it's the word preach. Uh, sorry, guys. Anyway, 
makes for a good pillow. You know, good macrame. We publish peace and publish salvation. Yes, we do, but don't cite the verse. Um, <clears throat> verse 16, have they not all obeyed the gospel? For Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Notice the, the contrast between verse 15 and verse 16. In verse 15, you have this, the beauty. In verse 16, you have the snarl of those who, re, who, who, who refuse to believe. And he's trying to say, his conclusion, verse 17, because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If we're not talking about it, they won't know. We can't assume biblical literacy in our culture anymore. People didn't grow up in Sunday school. People didn't grow up going to church on Sunday. They think Noah's the center for the Chicago Bulls. Well, he is, Joachim Noah, but that's not the boat guy. There's a biblical illiteracy. And so consequently, when you're having the conversation, they may say, you have a different spirit about you. What, what, what's, what makes you, how can you be happy in such dire circumstances? And then you can talk about your faith. Or there are those who are called to be a lot more expressive at every moment. And then you can be ministering because if they're not hearing it, they're not going to know. Now granted, God places it on their hearts. This is where he goes into verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Well, indeed they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Psalm 19. What's fascinating to me is you go to Psalm 19, starting in verse 1, it says, The heavens tell the glory of God. It's all about divine revelation. And he quotes verse 4, not the one that we know. He quotes later in the passage, but those who know their psalms knows which psalm he's talking about. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, which is an echo of Romans 1, 18 to 20, that men and women know the evidence of God, and they have chosen to reject it. This is where he's saying, have they not heard? Well, yes, but here's your opportunity to talk to them about it. And then he says, but didn't Israel understand? And then he goes into the law and the prophets, basically saying, no, they did not. And he quotes from Deuteronomy, Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. All day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. Blessed is the reading of God's word. Romans 10 the responsibility of responding to God's divine sovereign call is it's that balance. It isn't all up to us. It's not all God. I think we were talking about it earlier. So someone doesn't believe it's because, you know, God didn't like them. You didn't say this, I'm, I did. Um, and he hardened their heart so they can't believe. And we go, well, that's not fair. 
And we all think of being on the playground and not being chosen. We weren't picked. You're kind of sitting there, everyone else is playing, and you're the odd guy out, and like, oh yeah, lobby. Uh, do I have to? Um, I'll give you my sandwich. If you'll take him, you know, it's like, uh, you're not picked, so you're not special. And so you have this thing that we, we, we have, especially as Americans, we have this philosophy or this thought process, everything has to be fair. And God's sovereignty isn't fair. And I just love how, how Paul does it in verse, I think it's verse 20. Well, who are you to ask? Who are you to say, eh, God, you can't do it that way. Um, yeah, you can. And if we don't understand it, then that becomes one of those divine mysteries that we have to just kind of step back and go, I don't quite get the details of the exact order in which it all comes. The end result is, is God will accept anyone who responds. I believe that. I, I don't know how else to say it. And if you can say, well, there's this guy out there and, you know, he prayed, but was it a genuine prayer? I mean, I mean, comedians make the joke of, um, you know, you're going down in the airplane and then you say, oh God, I'm going to change my life if I'm saved and they're saved and the plane comes out and there's no crash and they're like, okay, <sighs> now I don't have to do what I vowed. That's not a real confession. That's not a real statement. That's not a belief in Jesus as Lord, a belief in, that God has raised him from the dead. That's a, um, you know, very narcissistic, help me now in my situation. And if so, I'll give you something if you give me something. It's an exchange of, uh, a merchant exchange, a trade-off. And that's not what God is asking for. Because if we're going to declare Jesus as Lord, we got to mean it and live like it. So let me pray and end our time. Lord, thank you for the uh, chance to dig into your word. A difficult passage in many ways, and yet a very simple passage in others. So much here, we could go back and study it again next week and probably pick up more from it. And I think that is what our admonition is, is that at, when it comes to scripture, and it, it, we, need to, we need to discuss it, we need to be in it at all times, in every time, at every opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.